Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is, what is intellectual property and why is it important? We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we are building an audio reference library on basic policy concepts for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy, or for those who may just need to get up to speed on a particular topic. Today, I'm joined in the studio by IPI resident scholar Dr. Merrill Matthews and by IPI senior research fellow Bartlett Clellan. And today, we're going to talk about what is intellectual property and why is it important, and also maybe a little bit of why is it controversial. So here at the Institute for Policy Innovation, intellectual property is one of the policy areas that we have sort of carved out and developed some expertise in. We think it's important, and we want to use this podcast episode to sort of explain why we think it's important. But let's first talk about what is intellectual property. Um, One of the really interesting things about our Constitution is that our Constitution contains very few um, what you might call specific positive authorizations for government. Our Constitution is largely a document telling government what it can't do. Uh, But one of the things that our Constitution specifically authorizes is the protection of intellectual property. Now, you won't find the phrase intellectual property in the Constitution but you will find what's called the copyright clause. The copyright clause says for the purpose of promoting the, the sciences and the useful arts, and it, it gives in, the, in our federal constitution, it creates a regime that, of course, later has been developed and fleshed out where those who create and invent things get to own them. And the way that they get to own them, these specific creations, is through intellectual property protection, whether that is copyright on written and composed in artistic works, or whether that is patent on inventions and creations, or whether that's trademark on brands, which is sort of a under under discussed and under underappreciated part of intellectual property. Um, now, the Constitution says for a limited time, and so that's always been one of the big contra- contrasts or one of the big controversies in the intellectual property space is what is for a limited time? And people have all kinds of different opinions about that. Uh, but, it, but you can't have an opinion about whether or not the Constitution actually authorizes the protection of intellectual property because it clearly does. Uh, and from my standpoint, and I know this is not universally appreciated, but there's been a lot of research done that the founders essentially had sort of a, sort of a natural rights view of intellectual property, that, it, that it's only... It's, it, it's, it's only obvious that the creator or the inventor of something, that it belongs to them in some sense. Uh, now, we, we take a utilitarian approach to intellectual property in our, in our legal regime, but there was a basic idea and a basic understanding that, that there's something inherently wrong if you create or invent something, then someone else can just come along and immediately copy it or steal it. And that that would, if that if that were allowed, that would take away the incentive for people, or at least a lot of the incentive for people to actually create and invent things. Uh, so in our in our uh, intellectual property regime, we have a what is it in copyright Bartlett? Life plus seventy five years. 
Um, I actually don't think I know at this point, but yes, I believe that's I, the I last think, one we've yeah, landed on. I think it's life plus it, it 75 keeps, years. It keeps extending. For, yeah, yeah, for cynical reasons. They, I could, <laughs> right. keep extending it. Exactly. And then the patent regime, I think, is what, 17 years, right? Or it's 15 years, and then there are some, some ways in which the drug industry is able to obtain a couple of extra years. There are all kinds of permutations yeah, to yeah, that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, as, as I said, we take a utilitarian view in our law of this, and what, what we mean by that is the idea that the purpose of intellectual property law is to incentivize not only creation and invention, but also distribution to consumers, the, the make sure that consumers are actually benefiting from research and from creativity and from invention. And specifically, the way that that works is that if you don't know who owns something, you can't really sign a contract. And so one of the key things about intellectual property protection is that it facilitates contracts, and so it facilitates markets. Uh, if you are a book publisher, uh, but you don't know who wrote a manuscript, or if you're not sure who owns the copyright or whatever, you can't really sign a contrast contract to publish it and to distribute it if you don't know who owns it. And so one of the important things that intellectual property does is it does establish ownership so that people can enter into contracts and agreements so things can be marketed, so things can be licensed. Uh, we have a friend, uh, a professor of intellectual property named Scott Keefe, who spoke at it one of our events years ago, and he used this illustration that, that intellectual property is like, is like a, uh, a candle lit in a dark room. And it allows people to find you, people who are interested, because, because patents are made public. They're published. And so you can browse a catalog of patents, and you can look and see who actually owns what ideas. If you think you have an idea that's complementary to that idea, uh, then you could actually find out who owns it. So, the, so the, the awarding of intellectual property, the awarding of ownership, is like the first step in the ability to create a market, whether that's a market for music or for books or for, for art, for painting, uh, a market for any kind of invention, uh, prescription drugs, aircraft parts, computers, computer chips. I mean, anything you can imagine. Uh, somebody invented it, somebody developed it, and, and somebody had the ability to sign a contract to commercialize it. Now, Bartlett, there's a really important distinction in intellectual property that you don't get to patent or copyright an idea. You don't get to patent or copyright a class. You only get to patent or copyright a specific iteration. An expression. Yes, expression. <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's the better word. So, for instance, um, it, for instance, Dr. Matthews in the prescription drug space, right? If, someone in, if, if a drug company invents a treatment for asthma, they don't own the category of treatments for asthma, they only own that one particular mm -hmm. molecule. Somebody else can come along and create a different molecule that treats asthma. That's why you end up with sometimes a half dozen or a dozen different, different drugs that all treat the same condition. Which is an important point because typically you see these days, people will say, well, patents uh, create monopolies. And they don't create monopolies. They allow you to uh, create a, essentially... A, uh, the ownership of one certain product, but you can have a lot of different other products that come up that compete to do the same, to do, to have a similar end with what you're trying to do, treating asthma. Right. Uh, but they can't just do go and copy what that drug did. 
what they can do is wait till the patent expires, and at that point, you have the pro- have a process, a legislative process, uh, which allows uh, generic companies to come in and make copy what we call copycats of that to create a generic drug, and um, there, there's competition then even among the generics as they create that. Yep. So if you could if you could patent an idea or if you could patent an entire class. The other thing that would do is it would prevent uh, improvements, right? Like if, if you owned the patent on, you know, let's, let's stick with asthma, right? Let's say you, if you owned the patent on asthma inhalers, right? You wouldn't have any incentive to try to continue to improve the product. And other companies would have no incentive to try to come along and improve on your product. Well, actually, I would say because there's a limit to the patent, there is, a, there is an incentive once you've had that in for a little while to start improving the product because you want to get a new patent right. to be able to continue forward because you know the generic ver- version's coming up. Yeah. And so you want people, you want customers out there to say, I would prefer to have this new product, this new innovative product, which there was the initial version, you had to take the pill twice a day. Now you only have to take it once a day. Uh, maybe you take it once a week, something of that nature, some improvement in there, which allows them to get a new patent and allows them to be able to keep that product up, even as generics are coming in that are challenging it. Right. For my, for my flavor, uh, my taste, I, I find the copyright an easier place to explain this, mm-hmm. um, or, or a way that people can connect with. So, um, and I was just trying to think through one on music, and I'm not sure I would have all the details right. So I'll stick with, with uh, um, writing, because that one I know better. So you, you don't get, you write a romance novel. You don't own the right to the notion of a romance novel, right? You don't own the right to even the setting, uh, per se of the, so a medieval romance novel, you don't own the whole area of literature related to medieval, uh, settings, and you don't own the notion of a romance novel. You can in fact read every romance, not medieval romance novel on the market, and you can come up with a new romance, a medieval romance novel. And that is perfectly okay. Yep. So long as you don't take the exact words, the characters, et cetera, from that original work. And that's why it's the expression right. in, in copyright um, is the language uh, for, for that, uh, for allowing further development of, of creativity. It does yep. not limit creativity. And to Dr. Matthew's point, it is not a monopoly um, on anything other than you can, I guess you could say I monopolize that character that I developed. Yep. Just like I could say I monopolize my backyard. Yeah. But, but that, that's as far as the analogy could possibly go with a monopoly. So yeah. just, just in carrying on with that, Tom had mentioned trademark as one of the areas. But trademark is, I'm asking the question, does trademark, that's light. I mean, that's forever. If you, if you yep. create a product and you're Sony or you're IBM or you're Apple and you trademark that name, you have that. There's not a limit on that as there is with copyright and patents. Correct? Well, so there, there are, there are limitations, but there is not um, an express dead end or end of that life. You often have to, you, in fact, I think you always have to renew have to renew it, yeah. but there are other ways you can lose your trademark, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there are other things that right. can be done. So you have to also protect that property. Like again, you might do with real property. There is a way. So there's a, an analogy here to real property. Um, you can lose your rights to your real property, to your backyard. You allow people to um, uh, mow that yard and, and, and camp in your backyard, and you say nothing, and there's a whole test for this in the law, but uh, you you essentially allow it for other purposes that you do not proclaim it as your yard, you over time will lose your, it's called adverse possession. So yeah. that that is a thing. So there are a lot of analogies to real property, even though, 
even though intellectual property is, I think, even more complicated because it's something you have to really get your head around what is going on as opposed to, oh, yeah, there's a yard and I can see people in it or not in it. I'll give you an interesting, um, an interesting contrast in the trademark area. Um, to get a trademark, and I know this because I filed several trademark applications for IPI, uh, you, you have to, first of all, you have to not infringe on someone else's trademark, number one, but you also have to prove that the trademark is in use. Mm-hmm. in commerce and you have to you have to include examples of like your logo on a product your logo on a letterhead or something like that you have to show that it's being used you can't just sit down and file a flurry of trademark requests for something that you that you aren't using okay now the contrast with that is like domain names you know like especially early early in the early in the development of the web you had people who just sat down and they just bought up thousands and thousands of domain names that they had no intention of ever using, right? But they sold them. And then they sit <laughs> yes. back and they yes. and sell them at a profit. Now, there's nothing wrong with that because it was permitted, right? But you can't do that with trademark. But we did have a huge policy debate about we that. We did. We had time, a huge right? policy debate about that. And, and I, there's still a URL out there but that I want that I can't buy because the guy wants an outrageous amount of money for it. He's not using it, but he owns it. You can't do that with trademark. You have to demonstrate... That, that you are actually using the trademark. And I think it's every 10 years you have to renew. Mm-hmm. And if you fail to renew, then you lose the trademark. Well, let's, let's touch on one more area of intellectual property, which I don't think we have touched, is trade secrets. Right. Because if you have a trade secret, uh, you don't have to share that with anybody, unlike a patent. Yeah. And you can, my sense is, keep that forever. So if you're a Coke, Coca-Cola, and you've got a, you've got a trade secret, the formula for Coca-Cola, you don't ever have to share that, and you can protect that from anybody else. Right, and that's why you hear these stories of the Coca-Cola formula being, I don't know if it's true or, or the not, Dr. Pepper but, formula Dr. Right, being in a being vault. Locked in a vault, right. and only two people <laughs> uh, know the code. or the right. only two, I, like, I don't know if any of those stories are true, but it, it makes a great illustration yeah. that a trade secret, I mean, frankly, the long-run trade secret is pretty easy. This is one reason it never gets talked about, and I'm going to bring it to a relevant issue right now, but it is super important, even in today's everyday society the reason we're talking about much is because to have a trade secret it's got to be a secret a secret (laughs) (laughs) sorry i didn't mean to step on your on your punchline there um the uh example today is that keeps coming up i was literally in a state capital and uh, people were talking about algorithms working in uh, voting on voting uh, machines Mm. and the state wanted to pass legislation that said those algorithms must be given to the state to examine and to uh, do with it. Well, as soon as that, so now you're the company, you're the voting machine or device company. As soon as you give that to the, the next part of the secret is gone. Yeah. It's not your trade secret. And even if you figure out a way and it could be done where it still is a secret under, under the regime, you now have opened up a huge door for the risk that it won't be a secret, yeah. um, a, a court case, et cetera, because a, a FOIA request, because remember, in government, we have FOIA, and so that information becomes public. As soon as that happens, the secret is gone. So now you are left with um, a couple different ways to protect that information. Uh, patent seems to a lot of people to be the most logical uh, because of its kind of sciency feel of an algorithm. On the other hand, an algorithm is an expression, yeah, um, and so perhaps copyrightable. But both of those, now the information is out there. So somebody could now go back to what we we're talking about with a derivative works. Yeah, 
you you could take a look at that algorithm and say, oh, now I kind of understand how that mathematics uh, approach will work. You can create your own algorithm that does not copy that algorithm. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Since you don't own the category of all algorithms right. related to voting machines, you now get to have an algorithm and puts that company out of business. Yeah. So the, the trade secret is really important um, for funny things like Coca-Cola, like Dr. Pepper. Uh, not funny to them, funny to us to joke about. But today, with so much of the world being driven by algorithms as a way to sort through information, make our lives easier, uh, allow us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do, it is critical uh, in a lot of these situations. So let me ask a question. Several years ago, uh, there was a lady who used to take uh, food and beverage products that people really liked, and she tried to figure out what was in them, and then she would publish the recipe for that. Essentially reverse engineering. Re yeah. Right. I've and seen so those websites on the web. With, with regard to Coca-Cola, she asked herself, what would a fountain, uh, a fountain in a drugstore, drugstore fountain have, because it's the late 1800s, I believe, have in there that they would use to be able to create a Coca-Cola? And so she sort of figured that out, and then she made something that she thought was very close. She called it Close-A-Cola. <laughs> it was never marketed or anything, but... If you if you're able to essentially reverse engineer and figure out what somebody has into a, a product like that and sell it, or is that a problem? As long as you haven't gone and taken their trade secrets, I mean, well, no, because no, you haven't broke, you haven't it, taken it, the trade. Yeah, secret. it depends. If it's trade secret, it's not a problem. Yeah, right. If it's a patent, it is if a problem. A patent, right. But yeah. on the patent, you don't need to reverse engineer. Right. Exactly. You actually, have the patent right in front of you. Okay, but so that, you could follow the instructions. But that brings <laughs> us to something I think is a really important topic because. Yes, trade secret is important, and there are some things for which trade secret is appropriate, right? But a trade secret is not protected, so it, 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 it's only a useful form of protection as long as you can keep it secret, Correct. right? Um, but if you're keeping it secret, you're also keeping anyone from ever learning anything from it. Now, arguably, no one needs to learn anything from the recipe for Coca-Cola, right? But one of the I, I disagree as a Diet Coke drinker. Okay, okay. But one of the, one of the geniuses of the patent system is that it discloses knowledge. Yes, that's right. Okay, and as a society, we want knowledge disclosed to the degree possible, so that we can learn from it and build on it. So, trade secret, in theory, is infinite, so long as you can keep it a secret. Correct. In the patent system, we we have this social contract where we say you can profit from your invention. But you have to disclose it so that we can all learn from your invention, so that we can build upon your invention, um, and that knowledge becomes public. We, we were talking in a previous podcast about the idea of tech transfer. Y you want tech transferred. You want research transferred. You, you, we don't buy into the knowledge wants to be free philosophy when it comes to intellectual property, but you do want the fruits of research and innovation to become public so that people can continue to learn and build on it. And so one of the real geniuses and beauties of the patent system is it does require you to publicly disclose your invention as opposed to trade secrets. So let me point out one, one uh, tweak there. It's not that you can't benefit from the fruits of your invention otherwise, because obviously you can in a trade secret. Mm-hmm. In a patent, you are given additional protections. You people cannot do exactly what you're doing. Exactly, Doctor Matthew's point. Yeah. If I can look at an invention, I and, and listen, this is where I don't have great examples. I'm not particularly mechanically inclined. But if there was something uh, that you could take apart, mm -hmm. 
and figure out, oh, well, that's what they did. And you can manufacture the parts yourself. They're simple, whatever. And you put it back together. You say, well, now I have this exact same thing. Under trade secret, you're, you're done. The secret is out. Yep. You don't need to break into a vault. You figured it out. Right. So what we have done is set up a system where we give the opportunity for that inventor to profit, exclusively profit from that invention for some amount of time in return for that then being put. So there is, there is a give and take here, yep. um, a market, essentially a, a, something of a market system that ends up being set up. Um, and I will say in copyright, um, and, and you were, you were tracking right back to the constitution, which is, which is a great, um, uh, place to, to go since we started there. And that is in copyright. Obviously this is material that is usually already public. And so how do I profit from that book? Well, the only way I'm yeah, going to you disclose it the moment that, you, that, yeah. right, the only way I'm going to make money in that book is if I put it in a bookstore right. um, or on Amazon yep. and okay. Now the first person buys that book and they run to the photocopy and they make copies and they say, well, I can sell you that exact same book for, or I scan it these days when I'm talking about photocopies, I scan it and I put it online and I will sell it to you to download your Kindle for buck 50. And supposed to the, I don't know what a hardback book goes for these days, 30 bucks. Well, of course, the market is destroyed at that point. Right. So we provide uh, for the useful arts out of the Constitution to create that marketplace. That is the whole notion that is uh, baked into the way we think about intellectual property. So that, that's when you hear, see that language in the Constitution, it doesn't need to list out copyright per se or patents per se. Yep. Th those, are, those are, dare I say, expressions of what was originally written yeah. in the Constitution. No, that, that's a really good point. I, I, I want to say one more thing, though, about trade secrets, though, because I think this is important, and that is that. The alternative to patenting something, there's two alternatives to patenting something, I, I would think. I'm just thinking out loud here. One alternative would be to just simply choose to publicly disclose it and not patent it, right? Just for, just for the good of, I think it's famously said that like Jonas Salk didn't patent the polio vaccine, right? And, and things like that. Just, just out, of, out, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm not going to claim ownership of this. You have a right to do that as an inventor. If, that's what, if you want to give it away for free, you have that right to do that. And there might be wonderful humanitarian reasons for doing so. But the other alternative to patent is trade secret. In other words, if we, if we were to allow the patent regime to become very weak and very insecure, uh, inventors might say, you know what? It's not worth the disclosure. I'm just going to keep it a trade secret. And the downside of that, again, is that that is not a sharing of the knowledge. That's not a share. That's not a transfer of the technology. So just at, when we talk about, you know, trying to get the IP regime correct, when we talk about the balancing that needs to be done and all that kind of thing, I think one thing we always want to take into account is if you weaken the patent system to too great of a degree, the great risk is that things start becoming trade secrets. And that the public does not benefit from the knowledge and that other inventors and other creators don't get to learn from the invention and then go out and, and create something themselves. So we, we don't want the system skewed in favor of trade secret. We want the system skewed in favor of patent because of the disclosure involved. And that's not to say that there are some things for which trade secret is appropriate, but you don't want your whole IP regime to move in the direction of trade secrets. There's a, there's a significant downside to that. And let me go one step further. It's also why we want to have a robust copyright protection system because we don't want great thoughts, great uh, expressions of poetry, of music, of, of writing, uh, of screenplays, of, of um, movies, of et cetera, 
to be locked in the heads of very creative people. Yeah. We want to see and feel their expressions and you can go to a whole, um, philosophy of aesthetics, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, those expressions are important, uh, to have for, for people for various reasons. And that is exactly the motivation is yeah. to give a pathway for those not to just stay in their head as a secret quote unquote, but as a public expression that they can enjoy the fruits of their labor, the fruits of their thought, the fruits of their creativity, even while the rest of us get to enjoy all of that at a fair price. I think that's a great segue to uh, let's wrap up with talking about sort of why intellectual property is controversial. And the reason I think that's a great segue is that sometimes proponents of intellectual property will go too far and they'll say, if we don't have intellectual property, people won't create an event, right? And even though we are strong defenders of intellectual property, we would not say that. Uh, poet's going to poet, right? Novelist's novelist going to novel, right? And, and inventors are going to invent. People who are creative are, are, are inherently creative. They don't simply, songwriters don't, don't just write songs to make money. That's part of the motivation. But somewhere deep inside, they're a songwriter, or they're a novelist, or they're a poet, or they're a tinkerer. You know, I mean, we all know, we all know people who are just tinkerers, you know, they're out there in the garage trying to make a better shower head or, you know, they get, they get frustrated one morning in the shower and they say, I could do better than this. So there are people who are just inherently like that. So there's, there's not a, not a single factor explanation for creativity, but what intellectual property does is it gives them additional incentive. And again, as we started off with, it creates an entire regime that allows that, that expression, that copyrightable expression or that patentable idea, uh, to, to enter into a stream of commerce to, it, it gives, it gives distributors an incentive to distribute. It gives publishers an incentive to publish. Uh, it gives manufacturers an incentive to manufacture. So it's not that people only create because of intellectual property. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a additional incentive to what is probably their primary incentive in their brain and in their soul. Uh, but it's an additional incentive and it is also a means for their creativity to be made available to the rest of us. And there've been some interesting studies done. For instance, there are countries that, that didn't have copyright and much of the culture from that, from that country never got spread to the rest of the world. Um, it's particularly in the area of music. One of the reasons that we're all familiar, at least at some level with Jamaican music is that Jamaica actually had a strong copyright regime. Thank you, Bob Marley. It was seriously. Uh, whereas a lot of other countries, particularly some African countries did not have copyright. And so there was no incentive. I mean, most people didn't even know anything about South African music until Paul Simon got involved with some African musicians and started including them on his records and things like that. Um, so if you don't have copyright, entire culture, sometimes just stay on the shelf, right? They, they're, they're not made aware to the rest of the world. So it's not that you only create because of intellectual property, What that intellectual property allows you to do is share your creation with, with the rest of the world and have you profit from it. So that's one of the controversies is that, is that people who are proponents of IP take it too far. Uh, the other controversy, of course, is that uh, length of term is a big area of controversy, both in patent and in copyright, but particularly copyright, yes, right? Yes. Uh, there's, there's a huge argument that, okay, look, 
it makes sense to grant copyright, but really life of the life of the creator plus 75 years, that seems excessive. Just lately in the news, as we record this podcast, there's been this, the news that I think Winnie the Pooh has finally passed into the public domain. And so now there's all these people out there planning to do all sorts of mashups with Winnie the Pooh, you know, like Winnie the Pooh fights, you know, the vampires and all this kind of ridiculous stuff. Yeah, that'll know? go over well. Well, whether there's a market for it or not, <laughs> uh, and I doubt that there is, you know, um, it has taken this long for Winnie the Pooh to pass into the public domain. And so there is an argument out there. I'm, I would not make it. I think you might. I would not make the argument that life plus 75 is too long. But there's certainly an argument about that. And the Constitution doesn't specify it. The Constitution just says for a limited time. So it's up to Congress to determine that. And in fact, the life plus 75 years was challenged all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court came back in a unanimous, I believe, nine to nothing decision that it's the purview of Congress. Congress can define a limited time for however long Congress wants to. I, I, I agree with the court yeah. on that, obviously, yeah. right? It's not yeah. defined. Um, I probably would make an argument. And I don't have the magic time or the magic yeah. number. I do think it's gotten a little out of hand. Yeah. Um, and, and I know there are likely some listeners who would violently disagree with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it to me, it's just kind of about reasonableness. Yeah. Um, and if you if you whatever believe that somebody who creates something creates it 20, 25 years before they pass, you have a creation that is now protected for a hundred years. Yeah. That doesn't, that, that seems like an awful, that's five generations. Yeah. That seems like an awfully long time to deny the next iteration of whatever that thing is. Because remember, this is all about that creativity and innovation. Yeah. And so at some point, I, and, and again, I don't know the exact point. That, that, that is not what I'm saying, that yeah. I have some other date in mind. Right. What I have in mind is at some point, the ability to innovate off that original idea after five generations, the time has completely passed for that, for that thing. Yeah. And so you can't make the next, the next step. You have essentially frozen that creation in time. And I, I'm not sure that that at all meets what the constitution says mm-hmm. for the furthering of the useful arts, as opposed to locking in the useful art. Yeah. That's my concern. Now, yep. and listen, I probably take these on a case by case notion ultimately. Um, and so some things might well be worth protecting. The other thing that's important to note here is a lot of the, uh, a lot of the items that we would be talking about often could just be protected with trademark. And so now, while that would mean you might have to have a lot of different images of Winnie the Pooh done over time to trademark, they could be protected with trademark. So mm-hmm. it doesn't all have to be done through copyright. So yep. there are other avenues here that that require further maintenance that signals to me and should signal to the market, signal to the public. These are, in fact, uh, worthy and productive copyrights that should not just pass into the domain because they actually still have value. Uh, to a specific set of people who roughly are the creators. Obviously, this is this is uh, maybe a couple generations past, but uh, you can at least make an argument yeah. uh, at that point. Yeah, I mean, you you, you can make an argument that um, life plus 75 years is too long for copyright. You can also make an argument, I think, that 15 years is not long enough for patent, um, especially when you think about, you know, we keep going back to the prescription drug industry, but we've spent a lot, we've done a lot of research in that area. Um, especially when it, it can take several years for that patented product to ever get to market, right? To get through the FDA review process and things like that. And so, you know, the clock, the patent clock starts ticking the moment you file the patent. 
but it, it might be a matter of years before you're ever able even to bring that to market. And it's also possible, you know, if, if part of the purpose of the patent life is to give you an opportunity as a creator to recoup your R&D costs, it's even possible that if, that if you gave a creator a longer patent term, that might actually lead toward lower upfront prices because they would have a longer time frame to recoup the investment. I don't know that that's what would happen, but there's at least an interesting argument there. And then the other, the other big controversy about intellectual property, we hear a lot of times from our libertarian friends or from some of our libertarian friends. And of course, we, we lean very libertarian here at IPI, but there, there is a libertarian argument that is just fundamentally against intellectual property. They just, they don't, they don't like it. Um, they believe it's the creation. It's, it's the creation of government. It's the government awarding monopolies to people and monopolies are bad and government's bad. So intellectual property must be bad. The, the inconvenience, of course, being the fact that it's in the Constitution. <laughs> so I suppose, I suppose if you are a libertarian and you believe strongly in the Constitution, that would put you in a position of wanting to amend the Constitution to do away with the copyright clause. Uh, more government. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I've, I've, never, I've never completely understood the libertarian argument. Libertarians in all other areas tend to be strong believers in property rights. They tend to believe that it's almost always a good idea to attach a property right to something because then you create a market, right? Libertarians wanted, wanted to attach property rights to pollution, to the right to pollute, right? Uh, because that would, that would create a market in pollution credits and it would give people incentives, companies incentives to bring down pollution. So, you know, wh when you generally think it's always an improvement to attach a property right to something, I, I don't understand why you decide, but, but boy, it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing for somebody who writes a book to be allowed to own the fruit of their labor. I mean, it seems like owning the fruit, it's okay for a ditch digger or a roofer to own the fruit of their labor, but it's not okay for a poet to own the fruit of their labor. Yeah. You have to end up going, you have to end up denying the natural rights argument for, mm -hmm. for copyright is where this usually yeah, comes up yeah. for copyright. Um, and then you, because then you can say, okay, now it's only a protection, a legal protection. Okay. But you have the constitutional problem. Mm -hmm. Although I will say I run into the same problem with conservatives and, um, and uh, libertarians or libertarian leaning conservatives uh, around the notion of eminent domain. And yet yep. eminent domain, now there's eminent domain abuse. Yep. Just like I would argue there's probably copyright abuse. Mm -hmm. there, there, no regime is perfect right. um, in that people won't find a way to abuse it, but they are both in the, in text, the constitution. In the That's right. The yep. constitution. Yep. And so you then have to start denying whether you're uh, truly um, an originalist, yeah. uh, which is to say that you believe absolutely in what the constitution has written. And it's not just to be permutated over time. Um, I don't know. You have to end up denying a whole lot of things that normally go right to the core of, of libertarianism yeah. uh, to end up with that argument. So I don't disagree with you. Uh, frankly, I think some of it is simply the, I want to do this argument and I can't because it's someone else's property. Yeah. It's, it's liberty, <laughs> libertine rather yes, than yes, libertarian, right? Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics podcast. Uh, we hope we've been able to persuade you or at least explain to you why we think intellectual property is important. Uh, you can find out a lot more about intellectual property policy at our website at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.